There was a story this week about U.S. customs officers who busted a man crossing the border from Mexico with over $100,000 stuffed in his socks. $128,547. So you know there were some ones in there. Brian O'Day is a former drug and cash smuggler. He's on the line with us now. So, so Brian, uh, you, you've done this. W- what do you think about this guy's strategy? Pretty stupid. If you want to lose a hundred and something grand, that's sure one way to do it. Let's say you were uh, you were uh, going to try this, even though it's stupid. You were going to try this. Uh, how would you How would you do it? Well, first of all, I I would make every attempt not to move cash. I would convert that cash into something other than cash. For example, I would co- convert it into cashier's checks and have them made payable to corporations that I have incorporated in places like the Cayman Islands or Barbados or the Isle of Man or some such place. Can I tell you a story about that? Please. Okay. We had to move a bunch of cash out of the United States at one point in the 80s. So we uh, rented a jet, and uh, we put boxes of money on the jet, and we flew to St. Martin. Now, in St. Martin, there were no customs. There's immigration, but not customs. So what that meant, it's a free port. You could bring anything in, and it's not looked at. So we could land the plane. A car could drive out to the plane. We could put the boxes of money in the vehicle, and that would head straight for a bank in St. Martin. We would go through immigration, meet the car at the bank. The bank would count the money charges 1% for counting it and exchanging it into a cashier's check. We then put that cashier's check in my pocket and fly into the Cayman Islands where there is customs, where they do look in your packages, they do look in your bags, but they don't look in your pockets. And so there's nothing untoward going through customs and then go to a bank and deposit the check in the account. And that was basically how we used to do it. So when you walked in with that cashier's check, how much are we talking about? How how big is that check in your pocket? Well, five million, <laughs> seven million. You know, the last deal we did was two hundred and twenty-five million, approximately, and we had to move that money all over the world. You know, one of the main ways that we did it uh, in, in that last thing, though, was we rented a big plane and we flew it to Europe in cash and took the cash to the banks. Wow, that's like a full-time job—just uh, hiding that money. Oh, it is. Look, we had a, one of our houses, uh, you'd walk in the house, and you would have to turn sideways to walk down the hallways. And at the moment you opened the door to this house, because there were boxes everywhere, of course, they were all filled with money. And when you opened the door to the house, all you could hear was, and that was the sound of bill counting machines that were constantly being exercised and breaking down. So, Brian, before you kind of developed all these methods, were, did you ever uh, do anything uh, maybe a little less sophisticated? Did you ever do anything stupid? <laughs> Listen, buddy, they don't call it dope for nothing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, you know what? Uh, in my first encounter with the police in 1972, I had mailed uh, two pounds of hash to uh, the house next door to a non-existent person. And I could, I knew when the mail came every day. It was a very small town. It was in Newfoundland. And I knew the mailman. I knew when the mail came. And I could watch for the mail to come. Now, I mailed two packages like that. I got the first one. And the next one didn't happen. A month went by, and I figured it's not coming. It disappeared. 
I went to work and I got a phone call from a neighbor and said, Brian, there are half a dozen cops in your house with a dog right now. And so I realized that the jig was up. And when I got back to my house, I got arrested and charged with that cash that was sent to the house next door. So, so Brian, we've been talking about uh, smuggling money. Uh, you have also uh, you have also smuggled drugs. Can can you tell us about the first time you tried the uh, you know cocaine hidden in the cutout of a suitcase thing? On the plane, I sat with a guy who was being deported from Colombia. He had a bottle of Aguardiente, which we both proceeded to drink the entire amount. I passed out on the plane and woke up in the airport in Miami in a wheelchair, moving with that suitcase on my lap. I looked to see how the chair was moving, and I was being pushed by a cop. And I looked at him, and I said, what's going on? As I looked up at his face, and he looked down at me, and he said, son, I think it's about time you all got up and walked by yourself. I said, yes, sir, and I got up my suitcase and just beat it out of that airport. So what had happened was I had passed out in the plane. They carried me off the plane, put me in a wheelchair, wheeled me through customs with my bag on my lap, being wheeled by a cop through customs in Miami airport with Coke in that suitcase. Wow. And I got wheeled with the Coke through customs. And the cops helped you smuggle in the drugs. <laughs> he did. It's amazing. It is amazing. What a country. <laughs> <laughs> what a country indeed. Well, Brian, uh, this has been great. Thanks for your story. Oh, you're welcome. Brian appears in the documentary How to Make Money Selling Drugs, the original name of this podcast. Hi, Mike and Ian. This is Nicole. And I was wondering, how do I bet on the ponies without looking like an idiot in front of my husband's coworkers? Thank you. Well, that that's certainly something we can help with. Yeah, we're going to head out to Arlington Racetrack that's right here north of us in Chicago. Uh, we're going to meet with a guy named Scott McManus. He is kind of a legend in uh, betting on, on horses. You'll know we're there when we start speaking in hushed tones. It's time to bet. We have four minutes to post, so time is running down. Okay, one thing you always want to do, uh, don't say the start of the race, say post. We have a horse in here named John Galt, which I think is the horse to beat. Okay. My only concern with him is he's one for 15 with a bunch of seconds and thirds, which is an indication that if he's been running in the right company, that uh, he doesn't really have a will to win. Hmm. And remember, some... Some horses, well, a lot of horses, are basically herd animals. That's in their, in their genes, and they're happy to go out and run with other horses. But some of them don't want to pass the last horse. Really? They're happy to let somebody else be the lead horse. Like an alpha horse, basically. Yeah. So we go out there and we watch them run, and to the untrained eye, it looks like they're all just trying as hard as they can. But one of them may be saying, uh, you go ahead and win it, and I'll be happy to follow you in. I don't want to be the horse up front where I can't see everybody else. But you still want to bet on that guy? Uh, no, I don't, but you can. <laughs> what do you think, Mike? You want to go for it? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, let's go do it. One. So bet 100 when in place. Then if he comes second, you'll get something back. Are you telling me that I'm going to be a millionaire? Well, I'm, I got Brink's number right here. We can have him pick you up. Now, if you listen close, you might hear in the background uh, a little slap, slap sound. Apparently, that's kind of a thing. I can see that we're going to have a thigh slapper over there. He has these programmed, folded over or folded up 
and as the race progresses, he's going to get more and more animated. So right now my horse looks like he's kind of in the middle of the pack. He's certainly not leading. What do you think, Mike? I don't know. Here he comes. Here he comes. There's no way. He's not going to catch him. How's it feel, Mike? It wasn't even close. Now your guy's fourth. So what happened? That's what we say, he flattened out. He flattened out. He started to make a move, and he just flattened out. i got to help that guy find the EMTs. His thigh's bleeding over there. <laughs> I tell those guys that the horses can't feel that. There's no point in doing that. Is that basically what they're doing there, as if they had the crop and they're... You know, they're hitting their own leg yeah. like it was the horse. If you look at him, you can tell he works with the horses. Yeah. Now, do these horses get, uh, will, the, will their trainers or, or anybody involved give them a treat when they win? Do they get special treatment? Yeah, they, they make a big deal out of them when they get back to the barn. They get back to the barn, they get, uh, they get a bath, and they walk them around till they cool off. And then they get their oats. If the horse likes peppermints, and almost all horses do, They'll be giving them peppermints and making over them, and you did a good job today. Nobody knows how much they really understand all that. But. The same peppermint you or I would eat? Yes. Mm -hmm. So the jock that jockey who just walked by us looks pretty animated. What was he talking about with his uh, the guy he was walking with? Oh, the guy in the red silks? Yeah. Walk back, we laugh about it. That's excuse time. Is that what he's doing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Doc, how are you? Yeah. Typically, they'll walk back with the trainer, and they're explaining how the horse felt. And when I ask him to run, he just wouldn't run. And I don't know what it was. It was like his mind was elsewhere. All kinds of stuff like that. Do you see a lot of jockeys spitting the day of a race to kind of make weight? Yep. Oh, yeah? And they come in, and they sign in, say hello to the clerk of scales. And they'll come over and weigh. If they're too light to make it, and it includes boots and saddles. Oh, yeah. If they're too light to make it, then little lead weights are put in the saddle cloth. Really? That's how they get them up to weight. That sound means that they're about to start, right? That's called the call to post. Okay. It actually dates back to the 1800s and the cavalry brigades and so forth. When they actually had a bugler and he'd make that sound, then the soldiers were supposed to get their horses and get ready to ride. So if we're standing here and we're looking at these horses and we want to sound like we know what we're talking about, mm -hmm. like what's a slang way to refer to a horse that looks good, like that horse looks strong? That horse is on his toes is a popular expression. Mm -hmm. it means he's up and ready to go. And uh, a real good one is, I like his racing muscle. Oh, I like that, yeah. We use that expression and only the diehards will know what you're talking about. I like his racing muscle. Racing muscle, yep. It's actually an indentation that goes down either side, roughly between his body and his, his hips. Okay. So it's, a, there, it's not just a phrase, it, there is actually a... There is a racing muscle, right. I'm having a hard time telling apart jockeys and kids, because that guy who just walked by looked like a kid, but his voice was a deep man's voice. Yeah, I thought jockey when I saw him. Oh, okay, see, I thought 10-year-old. You might be better, at, you might be really good at this. I don't think you can bet on jockey or kid. I mean, I guess you can. You can bet on anything. Yeah. We, could, we could bet on yeah. that. Uh, this, is called, this is called a post parade right here. Okay. They bring the horses out, and you'll notice that usually each horse will have an escort pony. Now that, again, is to keep them calm. So the escort pony is a, is a, po a horse that's not racing, no, it's a lot of them are retired 
thoroughbreds. And they're retired thoroughbreds with a good disposition. So the, other, the horse that's going to race feels comfortable with them, keeps him quieted down. You'll see that see the gray there. He was putting his head over the neck of the escort pony. It was adorable. All right, so Mike has uh, left to go make his bet. So Scott, Mike, Mike lost his first bet. It seems like he's kind of trying to to win it, win back what he lost. It's called chasing. Chasing. They, they lose and then they want to get it back. And yet, the, the sooner the better. And chasing, that's what Mike's doing now. Yeah, Mickey Rooney one time was in town, this is about 20 years ago, and Arlington opened a new OTB downtown, and they had me go down and do a seminar down there. I walked in, it was Saturday morning, I got there before fans were coming in so I could get set up in the little theater they have in there, and who's sitting right in the front row but Mickey Rooney? And he says, hi, who are you? So I told him who I was and why I was there. He says, oh, that's great, I need to sit on it. I don't know what the heck I'm doing with this stuff. He says, but I've been a horse player for a long time, you know. And I said, yes, I, I'm aware of that. And he said, you know what? I, my first bet was $2. Since then, I've spent a million trying to get it back. So that's an old racetrack joke that he had to tell me. Yep. In his case, I think it's true. <laughs> All right. Looks like one minute to post here. One minute to post. Is there anything else? Is there anything we should do now? We have... We have money on this race with our Exacta box. Um, when they turn for home, you should probably stand up. Okay. If you want to slap your thigh with your program, go ahead. I'll tolerate it. It's fine. Mike looks like a thigh slapper to me. <laughs> for this race, uh, Mike, uh, you bet on the six horse to win and place. Right. So I basically have uh, two bets. Uh, if he wins, if the horse wins, I win. But if he gets second place, I also win. And they're off. Ah, somebody else wants to challenge for Oh, uh, look at him. See how he's still got restraint on the horse? See how he's way up? He's out of the saddle and he's way up. As we say, he, he hasn't asked the horse to run yet. Get excited, come on! You picked the winner in that, though. You said seven. Yeah, I like the seven. I like the seven, but his odds were too low. I didn't want to take him at two to one. So what's your favorite kind of bet to me? It's the last one I won. <laughs> Okay, it's been a few weeks. You've sent in dozens of wonderful and terrible ice cream flavors. We have taken all of your suggestions and we've narrowed it down to four. And we're in the how-to kitchen. Uh, we're making them now. That's the sound you hear. Okay, they are uh, about ready to go. We're bringing in our official taster, Peter Sagel, to sample them. All right, Peter. Um, we're going to have you taste some of these ice creams. Okay. And then we'll talk afterwards. Right. Are you going to taste this too? Or oh yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. Okay. okay. Here's our first ice cream. The first ice cream is not bad. Uh, Garrett's popcorn mm -hmm. Chicago mix. It's a uh, caramel popcorn and cheese popcorn together. This was submitted by Andy. A little crunchy there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
You like it? It's not. It's not terrible. This is maybe the first time you've ever fed me anything that wasn't immediately awful. I'm. I'm. I'm somewhat grateful. It's like the prodigal food. Was that be like a Garrett's popcorn? It's a Garrett's Chicago mix. Hey, yeah, that's good. Good. Plus, I mean, it's nice because one of the problems, as everybody knows, with that stuff is it's just it's so gross to pick up and put in your hands. It's just covering your hands. Yeah. The goop and the um, ice cream provides a nice transport system to your okay. mouth. I like it. All right, here is um, ice cream number two. Remember, don't look too. Close. Next up. Uh, from Dave, it's pregnant paws. That's a pickle ice cream. It seemed to be a, a vanilla ice cream with th- things in it. Try and get a thing. Try and get a thing. Just, you I got one. You got one in there. Is there? Let me, let me get a bigger one over here. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what this is. Oh, that's gonna be good. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that that I had a moment of like disbelief, like you know, classically, mm-hmm. like that can't be. Yet it is. That's a pickle ice cream. <laughs> it is. It's no. uh, D- Dave who submitted it calls it pregnant paws. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So do you do you like this? I, no. Oh, that's terrible. No, it's not a good idea. Okay, here's our third flavor again. Don't look in not too look, deeply. Uh, this one, this Next we have uh, from Elizabeth, toilet of the week: chocolate mousse turds, corn, and a caramel swirl, all in a vanilla base. And uh, while we're whispering off to the side here, it's worth mentioning how much Peter Sagal hates poop jokes and corn. I don't. It's got chocolate in it, but chocolate. it's also got some things that are really unusual to find in ice cream. Like That's a right. Berry. It's corn. Yeah, I, I, you know, I thought I saw some corn. Yeah. There's corn. What kind of thing has corn and chocolate? And keep in mind, the chocolate is a stand-in for something else that's similar in uh, color and texture. Is, is this a poop joke? Is this <laughs> an elaborate poop joke? Yes. That's called Toilet of the Week. Is it now? Yeah. It's got chocolate chunks, uh, corn, and then a caramel swirl that comes to us from elizabeth elizabeth i want to try this so this it's an elaborate poop joke it's it's like it's an elaborate and a delicious ice cream that's all it is all right we have one flavor left this is our last one go for it no this is just i just want to say there's no obvious thing your final ice cream submitted by emmanuel joshua and ian malort malort ice cream complete mystery oh that's weird in fact, it, it tastes something that's not even like a food. Yeah. You right. know? It's uh-huh. not like a food flavor. It's a different, it's like a chemical flavor of something that might land in your mouth by accident. Ah. Yeah, I know? Uh-huh. And I'm trying to figure it's, it's like, could it be chalk? No. Keep going. <laughs> could it be, is it toothpaste? No, not toothpaste. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely not a food that you're feeding me here. It's something, something deeply wrong. Something sinister. Mm, yeah, we should yeah. try that. It's a deadly poison. Is it Malord ice cream? Yeah. It is. Oh my God. It that yeah, that's what it is, and that's what I ha- that was my reaction to the Malord, which is like this isn't meant to be consumed by oh, humans. There it is. It's like swallowing a bug when yeah. you're running somewhere. Exactly. It didn't squ- squirm. That's okay. not the kind of thing you put on the the book jacket, though. What? It didn't squirm. Yeah, it, it didn't squirm. At least it didn't squirm going down. Peter Sagal. There's a little bit more Malort ice cream. Yeah, I can't help but notice that. All right, Peter. Thanks for uh, once again being our uh, taste test dummy. Oh, my pleasure. Any time that you guys, well, I'll await your next call. A couple weeks ago, we talked about bees on this show. And Mike and I said that the horizontal stripes on bees uh, made, made them look fat. Now, uh, Jessica heard this, and she sent an email to say that isn't actually true. She, she has studied this. Her colleague, Stuart Ansis, is a professor 
at University of California, San Diego, and researches perception. So, uh, Stuart, horizontal stripes, uh, they're not slimming? No, in fact, um, horizontal stripes tend to make people look thinner, and vertical, vertical ones, surprisingly, tend to make them look uh, fatter. What? How? The opposite of what you'd really expect. Um, you can do it with just little striped squares, as was done in the 19th century by Hermann von Helmholtz. But you can also do it with flat pictures of women. You have the same outline. You can fill it with horizontal or vertical stripes. And those with vertical stripes look fatter, broader-hipped, than the ones with horizontal stripes. So you're correct that horizontal stripes, rather surprisingly, make people look thinner. I, this, this flies in the face of what fashion magazines have been uh, telling us. It just shows you should believe science, not fashion, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is interesting uh, to think about this because you don't really see a lot of uh, vertical stripes in fashion. Really, the only time you see them uh, at all are on referees. That's true. That's true. And I don't know why this is. I think that's making it show up more. In particular, the referee wants to look different from the players, saying, don't hit me, hit the other players. On the other hand, look at zebras. Zebras are covered in stripes, not to make them stand out for the prey, but as a kind of dazzle camouflage. So when, say, a lion sees a whole group of zebras, the stripes confuse him, and the striped contours are stronger than the actual edges of the zebra. So it's hard for the lion to see where one zebra ends and the next one starts, so he doesn't quite know where to jump. So all he sees is a giant zebra. Well, yes, a giant mass of stripes. He can't quite figure it all out, you know. In fact, this was used during the First World War and a bit of the Second World War. Um, we painted some of our battleships with jagged stripes, not to make them less visible, but so that, say, um, a U-boat couldn't tell which is the front and back end of the ship, mm -hmm. um, and they would be confused. It was called dazzle camouflage, and it worked fairly well. Wow. Until we invented radar, which made the whole thing a bit moot. What you do find in a lot of animals for camouflage is they've got white bellies and dark tops. And this is called counter-shading. The argument is that um, under an overhead sun, you tend to be lighter on the top and darker underneath, which is called shape from shading. If you have the opposite colors on your fur, this makes you look flatter and less visible. Wow. So this counter-shading is another form of uh, camouflage. That's why so many animals have got white fur on their bellies. Yeah, like when you look at a tiger, it has the orange and black stripes, but a white belly. Yes, although I must say, well, of course, a tiger wants to be concealed as well. A tiger wants to be concealed from its prey just as much as vice versa. And I think that's why most mammals have not evolved color vision. You know, if you look at lions, big cats, and so on, they don't have color vision. It wouldn't help them because the gazelles are chasing are the same color as the background. If there are any brightly colored gazelles, that have eaten up many millennia ago. What they are good at is seeing movement. So um, a lion will sit and look, waiting for motion, and a way a gazelle will avoid detection is by freezing. And if it keeps still, the lion tends not to see it. But as soon as the gazelle loses its courage and breaks away, then the lion's got extremely good motion perception and takes off after the gazelle. This freezing instinct you mentioned, is that why deer freeze in the headlights? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's a safety precaution. Now, it so happens that freezing in front of a car is not a good idea. <laughs> but freezing in front of a lion is a good idea. So if we'd had cars millions of years ago instead of lions, you would not have them freezing in the headlights. They'd run when they see the headlights. Yeah, it's unfortunate. My car never falls for that. That's a shame, isn't it? Yes, yes. <laughs> well, this has been great, Stuart. Thank you so much. My pleasure. We are still collecting your Toilets of the Week. Get your nominations to howto at npr.org. 
This week's toilet comes from Nathan and Kyle. It's the bathroom at Coca-Cola Park in Lehigh Valley, home to the Iron Pigs minor league baseball team. John Schaefer from the Iron Pigs front office is on the line with us now. So, John, tell us about your toilet. Yeah, they're very unique. It's um, actually a urinal gaming system that we have at Coca-Cola Park. We were the first uh, bathroom in, in North America to feature this, and basically it's, it's what you would en- envision. You walk right up, and uh, as you use the urinal, um, basically the way you aim is the way you play the game. Whoa, what kind of game is it? There's all types of games. It actually changes based on uh, the day of the week or the length of our homestand, but there's everything from skiing to track and field to true and false to trivia. There's there's a lot of different games. So I'm standing at the urinal and in front of and I'm looking at a screen while I'm peeing. That's correct. You you walk right up, it recognizes that you're there. Uh, it then recognizes your stream. <laughs> uh, and it recognizes when you're when you're done as well. So you said there's a there's a skiing game. Can I assume that it, if I pee to the left, I'm my skier goes left? Is that the idea? That, yeah, that's correct. It's basically it's intuitive, um, and basically it's easy to use. It's seamless. You walk right up. Um, it says uh, kind of go, so to speak, and, and you go. <laughs> Uh, and as the, the skiing game in particular, you're actually knocking over penguins. So as you knock sure. over penguins, your score goes up. At the end of the game, you actually get a two-word code. You then uh, can enter that code into your smartphone, and then you can put your name into the standings and see where you stand uh, among other participants. You should probably wash your hands before you enter in the code, though, right? You probably should. That's why they, they give you the code. You're supposed to remember it. You wash your hands, then you go to your smartphone and enter it in. Now... It sounds it sounds really fun. I, w- I wonder, have you seen an increase in beer sales at the park? Because I feel like I want to do everything I can to get to play more. <laughs> well, it's interesting that that wasn't. We were told uh, that it would be a possibility. That was never really the the goal of the of the <laughs> product. I, I think we said, hey, let's do something that people will say. Do they really have urinal games in the restrooms? And the answer is yes. Well, I know a lot of minor league teams uh, have different entertainment between innings. They'll have like sumo wrestling. They'll have like sausage races. Are you considering between innings having uh, urinal competitions on the field? <laughs> we won't have that. We won't have that. But I will tell you this: that throughout the night on the video board, we do have the urinal game standings. Oh wow! Do you have a guy who's like you know really good at it? <laughs> I think there's a lot of people depending on the night that. That uh, have you know had some top scores, but it's the type of thing that resets every night, and you can you know give it a go and 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 see how you stack up against the rest of the competition at Coca Cola Park. Yeah, it's I mean it's another game. I you should get like you know notable people to throw out the first pee, the urinals or something. <laughs> all these all these ideas are on the table, certainly <laughs> moving forward. Well, John, congratulations! You have our toilet of the week. We appreciate that. Well, that does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? I, I learned that uh, after a horse race, there's something called excuse time. Excuse time. This is when the jockeys uh, are trying to explain why they lost. Yeah. yeah. I think that, that yeah, I think every activity could maybe have a designated excuse time. 
Yeah, maybe maybe at the end of every day, you could just set aside a few minutes for excuse time. We kind of go over your failures. Mm-hmm. I guess I kind of do that anyway. Yeah? Does, I mean, I think everybody does that, right? That's Who, why we can't sleep at night. We wake up. Going, going over the failures. Oh, damn it. Is it excuse time right now? Yeah. Two o'clock in the morning? Mm-hmm. Pretty much it's always excuse time. I woke up last night at excuse time, uh, and my wife was out of the room. And it was so hot, she was putting in an air conditioner at midnight because our kids were, like, s- scratching themselves. They were so hot. Did Was one of your excuses uh, that you were too sleepy to help your wife lift an air conditioner? Well, I didn't need to come up with an excuse because I could just pretend I was still sleeping. Uh-huh. Pretend time. I, I learned that, uh, in fact, uh, horizontal stripes uh, don't make you look fat. Yeah, I was surprised by that. I mean, I, I think, I wonder if maybe now I can get all my fashion tips from the monthly journal of insects. Ah. It, really, this summer, uh, slimming exoskeletons are really in. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of for larva. It's like kind mm-hmm. of a larva thing. But, uh, you know, full-grown bugs are doing it, too. That's great. I mean, that's something that I know um, I've tried doing that with, uh, with my chrysalis mm-hmm. um, over the winter. I think maybe I'll try that again this year. Yeah. Plural of chrysalis? Chrysalid. Really? Yeah. Huh. What do you know about that? Ask me what I learned this week. What'd you learn this week? Plural of chrysalis, chrysalid. Yep. Just at the last minute there, I learned that. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Carrie. She just got engaged. To Ryan, our other intern. Keep up the good work, you two. You make a great couple. And some great interns. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks.